Hey everybody, what's up, and welcome back for the 2018 Halloween episode, Weird Music for Weird People. Last year I didn't do a music episode, at least I don't recall doing a music episode. I think I just did a Harry Houdini, the last Harry Houdini seance that they did, and uh, I took a break from it, and everybody was like, hey, where's our weird music show, as has become sort of a tradition with us. So this year I put a post up in Facebook saying, hey, do you people want me to do this? And everybody responded with yes, and then promptly started sending me suggestions for music to use in the show. So this year, Lobo and myself managed to put something together. Yes, just because you're hearing me does not mean that Lobo is not here. We got together, picked a bunch of stories, a bunch of strange articles, and we're going to kind of cover them in between different musical pieces. All of the music that you hear in this show, you're going to be able to go to projectarchivist.com, which takes you directly to our Podbean page, and I'm going to have an order that the songs appeared on this show, what the song was and who recorded it, or something like that. So if you hear something that you like and you want to know what it was, you can go to the website, look it up and go, oh, okay, that's cool, and then go find music wherever people find music these days, you damn millennials. For shits and giggles, I have decided to include the original opener that we used, and I believe it was our first Halloween special that we did way back eight years ago. And the episode was entitled Sawain, but some of you people will know it as Sam Han. Hey, I used to call it that too because of the band. But um, what it is is we sat down and I said, hey, before we start recording, let's do a piece here about what Halloween would be like at the Lobo household. Because Lobo and myself frequently joke and say that Halloween is our Christmas. This is our favorite time of the year. I say that every single year and it still holds true. This is our favorite time of the year. So we sat down and hit the record button and we just kind of rolled with it. We had a rough idea of a script of what we wanted to do and it just kind of degenerates into this weird Hanukkah, Christmas, 4th of July Halloween thing that turns into drinking blood out of thermoses and sacrificing virgin midgets to the demon god Azathoth and stuffing stockings with cabbage and and, um, corned beef and you know all this off the wall stuff and we just kind of ran with it we did it in one take and i went back and put some music to it later and you know after all these years i go back and listen to it and i got to laugh because our microphone sucked and our recording equipment sucked and i didn't know how to edit or anything like that but it's still fun to go back and listen to so having said all of that i'm going to get us started good and proper with what many of you know is my favorite halloween legend the story of stingy jack and where jack-o'-lanterns come from As with all fairy tales, there are many versions of this story, but they all tell relatively the same tale. This one I'm pulling from History.com. People have been making jack-o'-lanterns at Halloween for centuries. The practice originated from an Irish myth about a man named Stingy Jack. According to the story, Stingy Jack invited the devil to have a drink with him. True to his name, Stingy Jack did not want to pay for his drink, so he convinced the devil to turn himself into a coin that Jack could use to buy their drinks. Once the devil did so, Jack decided to keep the money and put it in his pocket next to a silver cross, which prevented the devil from changing back to his original form. Jack eventually freed the devil under the condition that he would not bother Jack for one year and that, should Jack die, he would not claim his soul. The next year, Jack again tricked the devil into climbing into a tree for a piece of fruit. While he was up in the tree, Jack carved the sign of the cross into the tree's bark so the devil could not climb down until the devil promised Jack not to bother him again for another ten years. Soon after, Jack died. As the legend goes, God would not allow such an unsavory figure into heaven. The devil, upset by the trick that Jack had played on him and keeping his word not to claim his soul, would not allow Jack into hell. He sent Jack off into the dark of night with only a burning coal to light his way. Jack put the coal into a carved-out turnip and has been roaming the earth with it ever since. The Irish began to refer to this ghostly figure as Jack of the Lantern and then simply Jack O'Lantern. 
In Ireland and Scotland, people began to make their own versions of Jack's Lanterns by carving scary faces into turnips or potatoes and placing them into windows or near doors to frighten away Stingy Jack or other wandering evil spirits. In England, large beets are used. Immigrants from these countries brought the jack-o'-lantern tradition with them when they came to the United States. They soon found that pumpkins, a fruit native to America, make perfect jack-o'-lanterns. And that, as they say, ladies and gentlemen, is that. And this is Halloween. Decorating the house all creepy and dressing up in a costume. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. After that, we carve the turkey, 
and give thanks for all the stuff we have. Oh, dude, that's Thanksgiving. And the kids, they pull out the clay dreidels that they've been making all year, and we spin them as we light the Halloween menorah. Oh, what? After that, we set off red, white, and blue fireworks in the backyard, you know? Oh, really, dude? That's like the 4th of July? After we run out of fireworks, we all go inside, sit around the fire, roast some heads, and read stories out of the Necronomicon. Pretty sure that book's not even real. What about trick-or-treating and getting candy? That's Hanukkah, dude. Uh, You're a few months early on that one, anyway. What? After the stories, the kids get their corned beef and cabbage out of the stockings that we've hung over the fireplace. No. Then we sacrifice virgin midgets to the great destroyer Azathoth. God, really? Then we finish off the night by drinking blood from a thermos, you know, like everybody does. Dude, you're a f***ing idiot. All you did was mix a bunch of holidays and add some H.P. Lovecraft. And who drinks blood out of a thermos? Really, man? You don't need to be such a damn blanket about it. I hope Santa doesn't leave an Easter egg in your pillow tonight. <sighs> Happy Halloween, Lobo. Happy Halloween, Lerogen. Love you, man. Cthulhu bless us all. Everyone. Doesn't matter. Oh, Dad.
Monday. This is from Atlas Obscura. The macabre romance of a man and a mummy. Using plaster of Paris, wires, mortician's wax, and glass eyes, Tanzler brought Elna back to life and proceeded to take her to his home where the pair shared a marital bed. <laughs> Carl Tanzler, a.k.a. Count Carl von Kossel, was a man of many talents. The German-born radiologist, who was most definitely not a count, claimed to have nine university degrees via former submarine captain and accomplished an inventor. In reality, he was an eccentric and a lonely man who had abandoned his wife and children to work at the United States Marine Hospital in Key West, Florida. Well, of course it was in Florida. After taking the job, this is way back, so Florida's been screwed up for a long time. Quite some time, yes. After taking the job at the hospital in 1927, Carl maintained a relatively low profile and mostly kept to himself. That is until he met Maria Elna Milargro de Hoyas. That would be four names, folks. Actually, is, three. Yeah, three. Four. D no, really one, two, three, four. The D. That would be five if D was real. When the 20-year-old Cuban beauty came into him for an examination, Carl knew immediately that Hoyas was the woman for his dreams. Literally. For years, Carl had been plagued with, by visions of a beautiful, dark-haired woman who was destined to be the love of his life. Unfortunately for Elna... Carl assumed she was an apparition in human form. Carl's examination yielded a grim prognosis, and Hoyas was diagnosed with tuberculosis, a highly fatal disease at the time. However, now that Carl had found his soulmate, he was determined to save her life, sparing zero expense and displaying a total irreverence for hospital authority. Carl set out to find a miracle cure for Elna. He administered homemade specialty tonics and medicines, illegally brought X-ray and electrical equipment to Hoyas' house for home treatments, all while showering Elna with copious gifts and professing his love. However, despite Tanzler's best effort, she died of complications from her disease on October 25th, 1931. Tanzler insisted on paying out of pocket for Elna to be buried in an expensive stone mausoleum. And with the approval of her family, he hired a mortician to clean and fix her body before placing it in the tomb. One fact that family rema remained ignorant of was that Tanzler was the only person with the key to the mausoleum. After two years of visiting Elna's mausoleum nightly and generally creeping everyone out with his dead patient obsession, Tanzer was fired from his job and ceased going to Elna's final resting place, which Hoya's family found rather odd considering his behavior. Little did they know that Tanzer was far from satisfied with his nightly visits. He needed more quality time with his decaying dream girl, so he put Elna's rapidly decomposing carcass in a toy wagon and transported it to a makeshift lab he had fashioned inside of an old airplane. What? You, yes, there's a picture of the lab right there. Yeah, I see it. 
using plaster? <laughs> yeah, dude, this guy's messed up. He's been covered before on other shows, but he's messed up, dude. Using plaster of Paris, wires, mortician's wax, and glass eyes, Tanzler brought Elna back to life and proceeded to take her to his home where the pair shared a marital bed. Creepy! Necromancer! Necrophiliac! Over the years, Tanzler kept Elna alive, using wire hangers to preserve her frame, stuffing her abdominal cavity with rags, routinely reapplying wax to her face, replacing her decaying scalp with real hair, and constantly dousing her with disinfectants and oils to mask the rotting smell of her body. While attending to the physical demands of his moldering bride, Carl attended to his material needs as well, purchasing her clothing and perfume, and even installing a curtained cloth veil for privacy on the bed they shared. Apparently, feminine modesty was a prerogative for a man who routinely saw Elna's innards. This domestic Ed Gein-style bliss went on for seven years. Everything was going great until people inevitably started asking questions. The combination of Carl's habit of routinely buying women's clothes, his absence from the mausoleum, and the local boy's sighting of him through a window dancing with what appeared to be a giant doll aroused some serious suspicions. The rumors began to swirl that Tanzler was keeping Elna in his house. In October of 1940, now a few years have passed, Elna's sister confronted Tanzler at his home. He allowed her inside where, to her horror, she was met with the what appeared to be a wax dummy of her sister, if only. Elna's sister alerted the authorities, which seized the doll, only to discover that it was actually Elna's rotted corpse. Not only that, while performing an autopsy of Elna's remains, coroners discovered that among the multiple body parts Tanzler had reconstructed, he had inserted a paper tube inside her to serve as a makeshift vagina. Whether or not Tanzler fully consummated with his real-life corpse bride is a subject of public debate. However, it's pretty clear Elna wouldn't have been into any of this regardless. There's a picture of her right there, the wax doll. Tanzer was arrested and stood trial for wantonly and maliciously destroying a grave and removing a body without authorization. The trial became a media sensation, and surprisingly, the majority of the public, especially women, supported Tanzler, finding to be an eccentric romantic. While on the stand, (laughs) Carl, I know, dude, I know. Hi, Shelly, I hope you're enjoying this. Carl claimed that he planned to use the airship to take Hoyas high into the stratosphere so the radiation from outer space could penetrate Elna's tissues and restore life to her somnolent form, which made about as much sense as anything else during the hearing. Tanzler was eventually cleared since the statute of limitation of his crime had expired. However, since the trial had garnered such media attention and became because this took place in Florida, Elna's body was put on public display at a local funeral home where thousands of people could go and view her disturbing form. I love how they highlight, but since this is in Florida... Exactly! <laughs> After the gawking was over, Elna was finally reburied in an unmarked grave so that he, she could rest in peace without any further romantic shenanigans. As for Carl Tanzler... After asking for Elna's body back, a ballsy request that was obviously denied, he lived the rest of his days without further incident, although with a life-sized effigy made from Elna's death mask as a companion. Clearly, Nicholas Sparks has nothing on a dying romance of Carl Tanzler. Feel what they say. 
Moving on, what Halloween would incomplete, or complete I should say, without a story of druids and witches. This year's story comes to us from The Telegraph over in the UK, and this is Druid Witch Stabbed Her Neighbor Angry at, at His Noisy Pagan Ritual. Uh, a druid, <laughs> a druid witch, which makes no damn sense, but hey, you're either a druid or a witch, but a druid witch was attacked and stabbed by his neighbor after they had enough of his noisy pagan rituals a court heard. There is a lot of useless filler material in this damn story, so just mm-hmm. bear with me. Mark and Ann Dinier attacked John Benet as he conducted his latest back garden ceremony, which involved chanting and rhythmic beating of drums, something he did every full moon. Only Dinier once a month. Only once a month. Dinier exchanged insults over the fence with Mr. Benet, who goes by the pagan name Bearheart before... Storming around to his bungalow with his wife. Uh, Miss Deniers, 52, armed herself with an umbrella. What is she, Mary Poppins? Which she used to shoot. Which she used to hit the bearded druid over the head while her 56-year-old husband had grabbed a carving knife from the kitchen and made a short jab with it towards his victim. So one person comes with a knife, the other person comes with an umbrella. I don't get Uh, it. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. Because Mr. Benet weighs 22 stone and has a big belly, the blade didn't penetrate his abdomen and he suffered superficial injuries. A court heard that Deniers had never been in trouble with the police before the incident at Alderhalt, Dorset. Denier, a lorry driver, and his wife denied charges of unlawful wounding but were found guilty following their trial at Burnmouth Crown Court. Bournemouth. Sure, that place. They, <laughs> were handed, they were handed suspended prison sentences by a judge who recognized they had become frustrated with intolerable noises coming yet again from their neighbor's garden. Again, only once a month. But fellow residents spoke of the strange noises and smells that sometimes wafted from Mr. Binet's garden. Our neighbor, who didn't want to be named, said we sometimes heard odd, not normal music and smells like joysticks and things. John has personalized number plate on his car that says 666, which is a bit worrying. Not if you're one of us, but hey, I think he's quite open about saying he's a witch. Anne and Mark's home is behind John's garden, and it sits up a bit higher, so it's effectively looking over his garden. I think that made the noise levels a lot worse, but we didn't know exactly what we had going on. The court heard the Deniers moved to Hillbury Park, a semi-retired residential park, in February of 2017 for a peaceful and tranquil life. Too late. Their 150,000 pound, I said dollar, pound property backed up to Mr. Benet's home that he shared with his pagan partner, Samantha Hathaway. The couple are members of the clan of the Fair... Fairylit? Fairylit. Fairy, sure. Fairylich, which is inspired by ancient Druids who practice alchemy in the Welsh mountains, which has nothing to do with the number 666. No, at Today, all. members hold public and private rituals, or asbets, at the time of the full moon, solstice, and equinox. The Deniers took the exception to the disturbances from Mr. Benet's property. Again, a useless sentence that doesn't need to be in here, because mm-hmm. this has already all been stated. They had complained to the park owners about the rituals, but never spoken directly to Mr. Benet until the evening of November 4th. Judge Jonathan Fuller said, you, Mrs. Deniers, complained to your husband about the noise coming from the Bennett's, from Mr. Bennett's garden. Another useless sentence, which doesn't need to be here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's performing a full moon ceremony, which we've already figured out, which pagans are inclined to do once a month and involves incantations of rhythmic beating and drums, which we've already stated. Mm-hmm. I'm quite satisfied it was Mr. Denier who prompted the initial exchange over the finch, which soon escalated to insults and threats being traded on both sides. Again, more useless words, <laughs> 
both sides went back into their respective homes to avoid further conflict uh, simply should have ended there. But no, somebody had to get an umbrella and a knife. But a few minutes later, each of you left your home to go around to Mr. Bennett's and Mr. Denier with an umbrella and Mr. Denier with a carving knife, which I just said. (laughs) The court heard more insults were traded with Mr. Bennett's garden gate leading Mrs. to Mrs. D- uh, Denier to hit the druid with her brolly, which we stated earlier. I'm not reading the rest of the sentence because it's dumb. This resulted in two lacerations that caused immediate bleeding. He did, n- did no more than push you to one side. It would be under- <laughs> understandable if it was to some degree of force. Within moments, you, Mr. Denier, who were involved, you punched out towards him in the stomach and thereby causing the wound to the abdomen. You're right. They must get paid per word. They have to. He, on seeing the knife, then tried to disarm you. He grabbed the knife from you, but not before receiving other minor injuries. Throughout the struggle, Mrs. Deniers continued to strike him with the umbrella, (laughs) seemingly thinking her husband needed protection from the man who was, in fact, disarming him. You masher! The fracas was witnessed by Mr. Bennett's partner, Samantha Hathaway, who we've already stated in the article. Does Judge Fuller said, the depth of injury is unclear. Suffice to say, Mr. Bennett is a 22-stone man, a very big build with a big belly, who does look like a fat, hairy gay man, thus being referred to as a bear. Wow, my screen just completely froze up. Uh... <laughs> I'm just going to skip it. Anyway, he said, this is a man who has lived long and (laughs) fruitful life without causing any problems whatsoever. He has never acted in any way, which he did on that day before. It was at a moment of madness born out through a developing situation with her neighbor. Oh, my God. This stupid article is just pointless. Keeps going. The sky was blue. There were white clouds. They were shaped in a fluffy formation as they went across the sky. Three birds were then flying across. Uh, That guy got stabbed. End of story. (laughs) They initially tried to deal with it in the correct manner. Letters and plates that had been sent, but when they didn't work, they took matters into their own hands. This sounds like the people's court in a completely inappropriate manner. Judge Fuller said he accepted neither the Deniers had intended to do serious harm to their neighbor. They walked out with a knife. When somebody comes at you with a knife, they intend to do harm, and they stab you. He sentenced Mr. Denier to 10 months in prison, suspended for a year and 130 hours of unpaid work, Mrs. Denier to a six-month suspended sentence with 100 hours of unpaid work. He told them, you are of previous good character and you had gone to Hillbury Park for the tranquility and no doubt led blameless and hardworking lives up until this particular point, which has no point in this story. This was clearly out of temper and frustration at the intolerable noises coming yet again from your neighbor's garden. That was painful.
into the swing of it, it gets, it becomes normal. I mean, after you've seen a haunted toaster. Right here where it says put one slice, we heard, I am the devil. Uh, what kind of voice did the devil have? Um, a, a very low voice, I'd say, sounded like Eli Wallach. Have you saved any of this satanic toast? Yes, I did save it because I wanted to be sure that somebody else would see it. Now this one, can you see that, Richard? Satan lives. Uh, just terrible. Is the toaster still possessed? I, I, we're, we still have trouble off and on with it, yes. kept this toaster well Richard you know when all is said and done it makes good toast it's coming from vintage news I am not a man the mystery of the talking stove drove a family from their home in Spain in 1934 the police force of Zaragoza Spain was called in by deeply concerned family it seemed an uninvited guest had been bothering them for several weeks and simply refused to leave their house or leave them alone. Greeted at the front door by Mrs. Palazon. Sure. Or is that Palazon? I believe it's Palazon. There you go. It's, it's Spanish. It's so. a Spaniard who by now was already going out of her mind. The chief of police wasted no time. He began questioning the suspect right away. Who are you? Why are you doing this? Do you want money? He got one simple no from the other party in return. He asked, are you looking for a job? For who knows why not? Yet the answer, once again, was cool, short, and straightforward no. Annoyed now and with his patience running thin, the policeman threw his question, then who are you and what is it that you want, man? The answer to the question was what actually made this case so interesting. Almost 85 years after it happened, nothing, I'm not a man came a reply that uh, from what seemed to be an ordinary chimney. Yes, the policemen were talking to a chimney, one that had, had a special connection to the stove. Only it wasn't so ordinary because it was talking back, not only to the Palazon family, but also to the neighbors. It was not like a case of a seemingly talking chimney in Morganton, North Carolina at the beginning of the 20th century. No, not like that at all. They turned out to be picking up family quarrels, church music, and workshop noise from around the area through echoes in the sewage system. No, no, this chimney was asking questions. It was answering them as well. It was rude, ill-mannered, and insolent chimney that at one point even threatened to kill everyone in the room. That sounds like my stove. It was one day in September when the Palazones first heard maniacal male laughter. See? That was emanating from behind the walls of the kitchen of their duplex apartment on what was then Gascon Gator Street. At first, they assumed that the neighbors were making a ruckus. There were screams, shrieks, and all kinds of different unidentified noises along with the laughter that would come and go out of nowhere and got louder when the family opened their stove. You know what I would have done at that point? Throwing a turkey in? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> but then on the evening of September 27th, the maid, Pascuala Alcocar, was in the kitchen finishing up with the dishes when she heard the voice calling her name, followed by a burst of prolonged sinister laughter. Scared to death, she woke up her mistress to tell her what happened. For the next couple of days, the voices would appear randomly, sometimes as early as 5 a.m., oftentimes calling out for the maid as if it were some strange fixation with her. Occasionally, it would just tease people when they approached the kitchen. It was like it was an all-seeing entity fully aware of what went on in the house, or at least in front of his home, the stove. That little creepy guy in the picture? Yeah. The palace, what, I don't know. It looks like a goblin. Okay, here we go. It makes no sense at all. 
the Palazones were almost certain that there must have been a duende, a goblin-like supernatural being from Spanish and Latin American folklore, was for some reason living inside the stove and talking through the chimney. They told their neighbors and asked their asked for their help, at least to ease their minds that they weren't going crazy. Intrigued, they came over and, what do you know, the voice would greet them with a hello. So crazy, they weren't. Without options of what to do next, the troubled family called the police. Because, sure, the police know what to do. Word about the invisible goblin living in the, on Gascon Street had spread throughout the neighborhood, so the police came to check out the outlandish claim. It was mid-November when the first conversation between the police forced and the chimney took place. Oh, the police force and the chimney took place. To their surprise, each officer was greeted by name by the strange voice as they entered the kitchen. Baffled, but believing it was an elaborate hoax, the police arranged for the Powell Zones to be relocated to another residence while the apartment was thoroughly investigated. From the moment the people living next door heard about the family moving out, mass hysteria spread through the community. It became a nationwide sensation. Hundreds flocked to the street from every corner of the city to see or maybe talk with the haunted stove. Even the London Times began to cover the story, and a radio station from Barcelona was tempted enough to try and set up a microphone for a live radio broadcast with the stove's chimney as a talk show guest. Slow time. The case was the talk of what previously was a very pleasant, but nonetheless a pretty boring town. And over the course of the next couple of weeks, the Times wrote at least a dozen of articles about almost everything that went on. In their first article, for instance, titled A Polite Spanish Ghost, released on November 24, 1934, they reported that at first, a team of architects and construction workers were sent in to inspect the whole building, but could not find anyone anywhere. Reported sleuths. This like call the Scooby in the gang. Reportedly, when the architect suggested his men measure the chimney's opening, the voice simply said, you need not trouble. The diameter is six inches. He was right. Okay. <laughs> wow. And upon you know, further evaluation... I think I would be pretty. I think I'd be okay with a talking stove in my house. You I know, would. I don't. I, I, I. You know, as long as as long as we got along with it, and it was cool. You know, whatever. Just shout at it. Is turkey done yet? Yeah, really. <laughs> the police evacuated the building and brought in the army to cut off all electrical and telecommunications from the outside. The police patrol was then assigned to guard the perimeter day and night and not let anyone or anything slip through. From the very next morning. The voice was nowhere to be heard. Nothing was found. Priests were called in to sprinkle the chimney with holy water, and the Palazones were brought back under the assumption that whoever was making fools out of them all was now gone, with all the army and the police around. Cowards, 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 here I am, was how they were greeted the very next morning after moving in again. I will kill everyone inside, said the voice. <laughs> The family swiftly left the apartment once more, only this time they left it for good. The governor of Zaragoza, upon hearing that voice, had returned, ordered the police chief to bring the whole family in for questioning and psychiatric evaluation. On December 4th, the governor released a statement that the, the family made was the responsible party. Oh, huh. She was, he alleged, suffering from highly unusual and bizarre condition called unconscious ventriloquism apparently throwing her voice unknowingly. <laughs> okay. Even though she was nowhere near the apartment for most of the time after their first few encounters, the people swore they heard the voice when she was not around. The blame was firmly placed on Pasquala Alcoker. The family she worked for left town, never to be seen there again. The voice was last heard on December 4th. The apartment block was torn down, 40 years later, and the new building on the site was named Edificio Duende, the Goblin Building. Because that's not going to draw anything in there, right? Was the whole thing a hoax? No one knows for sure. 
No one ever stepped forward to take responsibility. It was not clearly demonstrated how anyone could handle such an elaborate hoax over such a long time. And probably there was has never been another case of unconscious tri- ventriloquism such as this. No, because it's not a thing. And, and talking stoves are. Well, well actually, I in this mean, day and age, it's possible. But, yeah, right. He was ahead of the curve.
this next one comes from Mrs. Daffodil Digresses, and it appears to be a ghost story from 1889, The Miserly Couple's Ghost. And it actually did appear in an article, I believe it was. I'm not really sure. Okay. In Bullock County, Georgia, not long since, a man and family by the name of Brennan moved into a farmhouse formerly occupied by a very old and miserly couple. The old couple, man and wife, duh, had no children or relatives, and both, dying within a few weeks of each other, were kindly buried by friends and neighbors. It was found that they had been living in a most abject poverty. The place presented a miserable appearance, there being very little furniture or cooking utensils with scarcely any provisions and several emaciated cats and half-starred fowls completed the poverty-stricken aspect. That is the longest sentence. Isn't it? But Mr. Brennan bought the place at auction shortly after the two old people died and immediately moved there with his family. But they were there only a short time before they wished that they had never seen the place. Strange beings were seen to be flittering about after nightfall, and the dismal, unearthly sounds were to be heard during the day. Mr. Brennan, his wife and sons, being honest, hardworking people and non-believers in, quote, ghosts, they paid little attention at first, thinking it was some practical jokes by the neighbors. But as the weeks sped by, things grew worse instead of better. Cold clammy hands were laid on different members of the family at all hours of the night, sending them into nervous chills. The bedsteads were jerked about the room, occupants and all, by some unseen power. Everything was turned topsy-turvy, and it was impossible to keep anything like order on the premises. Pandemonium reigned. It seemed as though the very air was filled with uneasy spirits. The Brennans grew desperate and were thinking seriously of hunting pastors new. When one morning, Mr. Brennan and one of his sons, being in the yard, were startled by a strange roaring noise, which seemed to proceed from the ground at their feet. As he described it, it appeared to be a small whirlwind of noise, and something seemed to impel them to follow it. It gradually drifted over into the cornfield, and and at the further corner seemed to sink into the ground at the roots of an old dead peach tree. They went into the house, procured implements, returned, dug, and found no one knows just how much, but it was a great deal of money, and the hoarded wealth of a lifetime of the old couple that died is well known. The Brennans have decided to still remain at the old farmhouse. It is quiet and serene there now. Where all was chaos a short time ago, the uneasy spirits have accomplished their mission and are at rest. So apparently, let's go terrorize this family, drive them insane, and then give them all the money that we no longer need. Well, they probably wanted to just get their attention so that and once they finally gave in to the fact that they were just trying to get their attention, then they, I guess so. they got the gift. I, I guess I, I could deal with being haunted by somebody for a little while for untolds of wealth, un, untold amounts of wealth. Yeah, I would agree.
the serious drive. Now you make the scene all day, but tomorrow there'll be hell to pay. I mean about future calamity I used to think the idea was obsolete Until I heard the old man dampen his feet This is a place where eternally
King's new Nightmare King burger will actually give you nightmares, scientists say. So it's got to be real. New York. If you think Burger King's latest food gimmick is nothing more than a marketing ploy, well, there's actually science to prove it isn't. It is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's power suggestion. Science is part of the marketing ploy. <laughs> On Monday, October 22nd, Burger King's new Nightmare King burger will be available in participating restaurants for a limited time for the lofty price of six thirty nine, while supplies last. My Big Mac cost more than that last night. The burger consists of a quarter pound beef patty, a crispy chicken fillet, one slice of melted cheese, bacon, mayonnaise, and onions on a glazed green sesame seed bun. Its most prized ingredient, though, nightmares. To determine if the burger actually produced nightmares, Burger King partnered with the Paramount Trials and Florida Sleep and Neuro Diagnostic Services and Gold Forest, Inc., to conduct a scientific study over 10 nights with 100 different participants who ate the Nightmare King before they went to bed. Scientists tracked various signals for the purpose of the study, including measuring heart rate, brain activity, and breath. The study, along with its participants, was used in a recent two-minute-long advertisement by Burger King. For different studies in the past, from different studies in the past, we know that food can affect dreams and sleep quality. I've said Dr. Jose. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> I told Alicia that last night. She's like, really? Oh, yeah. I'm living proof. <laughs> they told her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had I had a really bad nightmare, and I had pineapple before I went to bed. Hmm. It, was, it was, dude, it was bad. Uh, okay, so uh, sleep quality said Dr. Jose Gabriel Medina, the study's lead doctor in the ad. The study concluded that the unique combination of proteins and cheese in the burger led to an interruption of the subject's REM, rapid eye movement cycles, during which we experience the majority of our dreams. That's what I've said before, too. Eating cheese before you go to sleep, depending on the cheese, will give you different effects. The stronger the cheese, the more intense the dreams. Stilton was insane. Mmm, blue cheese, Roquefort. According to the previous studies, 4% of the population experiences nightmares in any given night said Medina. But after eating a Nightmare King, the data obtained from the study indicated that the incidence of nightmares increased by 3.5 times. That's actually a marked difference. Uh, Another subject in the video said the morning after eating the burger that someone in my dream turned into the burger. The burger then transformed into the figure of a snake. Again, that wouldn't frighten me. Uh, The third subject said that he recalled a nightmare where he was swimming in the water and was attacked by aliens because aliens live in the water. After this scientific experiment, it's safe to conclude that if you decide to indulge in a nightmare burger, do so at your own risk. I would. I am going to venture to wager, or however you say it, that you would probably get the same effect by eating a double cheeseburger or just simply some cheddar sticks before you go to bed, or a mozzarella of some kind. Maybe. Um, then again, you have to it, do with the dye that's in the burger. Or it the could pet, also the, uh, just bun. be that you're trying to sleep and your body is trying to digest all of these calories right. while you are sleeping. <laughs> Doesn't mention that it's 900 calories. Yeah. Thus making it more uncomfortable for you to sleep and giving you mm-hmm. nightmares or bad dreams. And okay. So they did a hundred people. Let's break this down. They tested a hundred people. Uh, and 4% of the population. Okay. Uh, so how many people of the hundred people uh, study your nightmares four. to different participants? So four, four people out of a hundred people had nightmares. Mm-hmm. That's an, that doesn't in my opinion that doesn't necessarily represent anything. You take a hundred no. people and an average four of those people are probably going to have nightmares anyways. But hey, <laughs> science. I'm going to do it. Yeah, I am as well. Uh, me and you are both going to obtain these burgers, and uh, we'll both do individual reports on them. I believe. Yeah, and, well, hopefully if we can find them. 
what they're not mentioning would be the color of the stools that you would have after eating these burgers. The sure, robust color, color of green. Yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember my experience yep. with the? Uh, well, you had one too. The other. No, black I didn't. Whopper. When I went there, I had they didn't. They were out of them. I had the same problem with a penguin cake that I ate. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. Because there actually is no, like, green dye, blue dye, uh, I think it's blue dye, like, black dye, there actually is no black dye. It's just extremely dark green. There is now. There is now. Well, apparently, they're, to take this one step further, if we're going to go into the gross factor, as clinical as possible, they have that new black cherry screams slushy there, apparently, and that is supposed to do some pretty disturbing things to your digestive tract as well. I remember hearing voices and like people walking around talking. When I would wake up, I think I didn't hear the voices. Someone in my dream turned into the burger. The burger then transformed into the figure of a snake. Besides waking up, turning around once, once in a while because of the cables, it didn't bother me. In the water, I was swimming. And uh, I remember I saw like a you know, alien coming up from the water and was trying to attack this little boat I was on. Our clinical study proves that the Nightmare King increases your chances of having nightmares by 3.5 times.
This is from OldRussia.net, and it's a story of Baba Yaga by Ivan Bilibin. In Russian folklore, there are many stories of Baba Yaga, the fearsome witch with iron teeth. She is also known as Baba Yaga Bony Legs because in spite of the ferocious appetite, she is as thin as a skeleton. In Russian, that's Baba Yaga Kostinyaga. In some stories, she has two older sisters who are also called Baba Yaga, just to confuse you. Her nose is so long that it rattles against the ceiling of her hut when she snores. Stretched out in, a, in all directions upon her ancient brick oven. Not being a boringly conventional witch, she does not wear a hat and has never been seen on a broomstick. She travels perched in a large mortar with her knees almost touching her chin and pushes herself across the forest floor with a pestle. Whenever she appears on the scene, a wild wind begins to blow. The trees around creak and groan and leaves whirl through the air. Shrieking and wailing, a host of spirits often accompany her on her way. Being a somewhat secretive lady, in spite of all the din she makes, she sweeps away all traces of herself with a broom made of silver birch. She can also fly through the air in the same manner. Baba Yaga lives in a hut deep in the forest. Her hut seems to have a personality of its own and can move about on its extra-long chicken leg. Usually the hut is either spinning around as it moves through the forest or stands at rest with its back to the visitor. The windows of the hut seem to serve as eyes. All the while it is spinning around, it emits blood-curdling screeches and will only come to a halt amid much creaking and groaning when a secret incantation is said. When it stops, it turns to face the visitor and loads itself down on its chicken legs, throwing open the door with a loud crash. The hut, the hut is sometimes surrounded by a fence made of bones, which helps to keep it keep out intruders. The fence is topped with skulls whose blazing eye sockets illuminate the darkness. When a visitor enters her hut, not too often, Baba Yaga asks them whether they came of their own free will or whether they were sent. One answer is the right one. Thankfully, she appears to have no power over the pure of heart, such as Vesalius, Valicius, or Valis, I don't know, that guy, and those who are blessed, protected by the power of love, virtue, and mother's blessing. Baba Yaga rules over the elements. Her faithful servants are the white horsemen, the red horsemen, and the black horsemen. When Valicius asks her who these mysterious horsemen are, she replies, my bright dawn, my red sun, and dark midnight. Amongst her other servants are three bodiless and somewhat menacing pairs of hands, which appear out of thin air to do their bidding. She calls them my soul friends, or friends of my bosom, and she is more than a little reticent about discussing them with Vasilisa. I don't know who that is, the character from the story. Another strange character who served as a herdsman for Baba Yaga is the sorcerer Koshki of the Deathless. And here's a mystery for you. While she is giving instructions to Vasilis, Baba Yaga mentions that someone spiteful had mixed earth with her poppy seeds. What could she have met? Could Baba Yaga possibly have, have an enemy? Would anyone dare risk incurring her wrath? Although she is mostly portrayed as a terrifying old crone, Baba Yaga can also play the role of a helper and wise woman. The Earth Mother, like all forces of nature, though often wild and untamed, can also be kind. In her guise of the wise, as the wise hag, she sometimes gives advice and magical gifts to heroes and the pure of heart. The hero or heroine of the story often enters the crone's domain searching for wisdom, knowledge, and truth. She is all-knowing, all-seeing, and all-revealing to those who would dare to ask. She is said to be the guardian spirit of the fountain of the waters of life and of death. Baba Yaga is the arch-crone, the goddess of wisdom and death, the bone mother, wild and untamable, she is the nature spirit bringing wisdom and death of ego and through death rebirth. And that is the story of Baba Yaga.
now that you have learned what you have learned, it would be well for you to return to your own country. I prefer to remain and protect those whom you would destroy. You are too late. My blood now flows through her veins. She will live through the centuries to come, as I have lived. Should you escape us, Dracula, we know how to save Miss Mina's soul, if not her life. If she dies by day, but I shall see that she dies by night. And I will have Carfax Abbey torn down stone by stone, excavated a mile around. I will find your earth box and drive that stake through your heart. The 